Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. Have you been watching uh, the new series, Picard? No. Picard? Picard. Yeah. uh, Is this a Star Trek something something? Yeah, like Captain Picard. It's, it's, uh, well, anyway, I mean, this is a, this is a long and winding and strange intro that just brings me to mentioning Star Trek because I love it so much. Um, but what we're actually going to cut yourself a break. (laughs) (laughs) What we're actually going to talk about is the use of machine learning in enterprise scenarios. Sounds good. And there, there, there it is, the Enterprise. Haha. You're listening to Linear Digressions. I think there's probably about four people left with us after that intro. Okay, yeah, let's no, talk about machine learning. The Enterprise. This is going to be a really good episode. I'm really, I'm actually genuinely yeah. pretty excited about this. Okay, cool. So, machine learning in the Enterprise. A couple of cool papers that I've been reading lately. As always, links on LinearDigressions.com. Uh, and let's, let's take them in order. So the first is... And- Mm-hmm. Actually, just to define our terms, what do you mean when you when you say enterprise? Yeah, uh, so I roughly think of this as like big companies, and I know that that's not super well defined, but I think it's sort of like you know, imagine that you're a big grown up company that's subject to like I don't know, you've got a real legal team that enforces stuff at your company, you've got a you've got a risk management department, you've got accounting full of accountants who care your it and security teams are uh fully staffed and care about managing your company so it's not super strictly defined here but it's sort of like big grown-up companies that need big grown-up software to run their big grown-up processes and that there are certain requirements then that that follow from that that you know if you are in the software space or really want to be interacting with these these kinds of companies at all uh, in most capacities then you need to kind of have everything together and so it's thinking about all right we've got these big established companies that have their processes and their rules and their procedures what happens when you introduce machine learning into this mix Mm, right. Yeah. Because if you have a big, mature adult company that's been doing things a certain way for a really long time, it's probably more difficult to introduce uh, new things, especially new, large, important things like machine learning that will definitely disrupt the way that things uh, are currently done and for the better if they're embraced. Yeah. And nonetheless, though, uh, yeah, exactly like you said these companies are eager to plug machine learning into these processes and be using their data for machine learning models that are going to help them make decisions, you know, potentially at a very large scale or in an automated way. So we have this kind of but machine learning. Let me step back here for a second. Uh, you know, machine learning is primarily a has a set of software packages Um, internal practices, kind of infrastructure built around it that has come a long way, but still has a ways to go in terms of the level of maturity that is required for it to be like really integrated into the processes of these organizations. So that's what we're going to talk about today is thinking through what are some of the biggest gaps between what machine learning can offer right now in terms of that infrastructure and 
what the needs and expectations of those enterprise organizations are. Got it. That sounds good. Cool. So if we were to break apart machine learning into a few big general areas, I'm kind of stealing from the paper here, but I personally agree with it. It would say that there's the notion of model training and optimization, which generally there are pretty good tools around that, like scikit-learn, uh, Carrot, if you use R, like there's good libraries and, and good infrastructural support for training machine learning models. The second thing that happens once you have a machine learning model trained is you need to score it. And this is a place where I think the the field has come a long way more recently uh, so that there's production level support for scoring machine learning models so that you can say, put it behind an API endpoint and you can hit it with some other service. There's SLAs and, and uptime guarantees around that endpoint so that you know, it doesn't just go down unexpectedly. That's something that would be a problem when you're in production in an enterprise, for example. So scoring is, there's probably still some ways to go, but scoring is not the biggest gap anymore. The big gap is around, how would I, how would I call this exactly? Maybe governance. So governance includes things like how do we secure our models? How do we manage and version our models? How do we control who has access or permission to those models um, if they need to be secured and, and isolated and controlled? Um, how do we roll over to new versions of the models in a way that doesn't disrupt their service to all the people who are using them? So this is the kind of stuff that's involved in, say, managing data or managing software at an enterprise scale, but there's right. not great tools for machine learning here. Yeah, I was going to I, I was going to bring it exactly there because this is an area that uh, so I'm a software developer. It's an area that's pretty mature in software development. Um, you've got version control with different repos that's hosted in a certain way. You've got testing uh, architectures and everything that can run on uh, server environments, you could just check in on them with the dashboard. You've got uh, rolling out versions, you can roll back if something's wrong with the new version. Um, there's access control. So basically all of the things that you just listed are solved problems in the software space. And uh, it, I'm, I'm not as familiar exactly with the data and database space, but to, to at least a similar degree are, are solved problems there too. Yeah, yeah. So in the database space, it's it's totally the same. So slightly different set of questions that you might have or, or problems that you want to solve. But it's like, mm. who can you just, part of it is discovery. Can you find what data is available? Like, are there good tools for serving up uh, all the data that's available to you? Can you figure out which ones you have access to? And do you actually have access to them and not to the ones you're not supposed to have? Uh, a lot of database systems support uh, the, these notions of data versioning and data provenance, which is how are all the different data fields related to each other, because usually there's these kind of complex relationships that need to be captured and propagated through so that when things change, if there were, say, an audit, you would be able to trace it back to root causes of, of those changes. So these are things that are also um, have some pretty mature solutions in the database space. Interesting. So 
when I think of machine learning, I kind of think of two pieces. There's the model itself, and then there's the data that goes into the model. So the data that goes into the model is either coming in through a service or is perhaps already stored in a database. Uh, so are we talking about governance specifically around the models themselves? We're talking about all of it. We're talking about the way that this this paper breaks it down. It's called um, Cloudy with a High Chance of Database Management Systems, DBMS, <laughs> a 10-year prediction for enterprise-grade ML. So this is still talking about you know where things are going to be maybe in 10 years. They're not there yet. But um, these folks at uh, Microsoft primarily are thinking a lot about where it might be going. So one of the things they point out is that a model, you know, what is a model? Well, a good way to think about it is a model is a software artifact that's derived from data. So both the kind of model, the software part of the model, like what was the scikit-learn version that I used to train this and what were the hyperparameters that I put into my training command and what other pre-processing steps did I have before that, you know, you have to keep all of that uh, in order. And then there's also the data that you actually use to train the model, and you have to keep all of that data uh, under control in order to be able to say that you really are managing the entire machine learning model in that in that vision, you know? Right, that makes sense. And one thing that I thought was an interesting point here is that in enterprises, you know, a lot of the enterprise companies that want to introduce machine learning into their into their processes, into their systems, they're not companies that necessarily have tons and tons of institutional support for their data scientists. They might not have gigantic data science teams. If they do, those data scientists might not be able to get their their needs prioritized by, say, the IT people or the software people. But instead, a lot of times the the skills that are valued in those data science the data science teams in enterprises is like understanding the domain in in which the the company is is operating. Like if you're the data scientist at I don't know Walmart, really understanding large scale retail is probably where you know what you've been hired for or what you're getting a lot of of kind of encouragement from from your system from your colleagues to understand a lot about retail that means that you're probably not spending tons and tons of your time thinking about stuff like how am i going to build a data versioning system so you're it's in this weird spot where the data scientists who are in these large enterprise organizations in some ways they have the highest need with respect to like really high grade data and machine learning model management systems, but they're comparatively poorly resourced to actually build it or create it themselves because, you know, they're not Google, they're not Netflix. These are not companies that are data science or or software or technology first. Instead, the data science, the software, the technology, it serves this other purpose. That's really interesting. I hadn't ever thought of it that way in terms of because they're enterprise and because they probably didn't start off with a strong data science prioritization, and maybe that'll be different for uh, enterprise of 50 years from now, uh, but because they didn't start off with that and because they now have to integrate the, the uh, this new, uh, I guess, technology, uh, ML, and all of these new people, data scientists, uh, I, I hadn't considered that that those people would be under-resourced 
uh, in perhaps a lot of ways. Yeah, so there's a lot of need that is being identified here for like thinking through, okay, what are the what are the long-term needs? What's the long-term infrastructure or problems that machine learning needs to be thinking about right now in order for machine learning to reach its full potential in enterprise organizations in the next 10 years? Again, that's kind of the premise of the paper. And so that takes us to the 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 forecast is, as I said from the title of the paper, paper, cloudy with a high chance of database management systems. Um, this kind of brings us to the second paper, which I think has some some overlap in the author's list, which is thinking through, okay, if we want to have machine learning in the enterprise, and enterprises right now use databases to manage their data, and those databases seem to you know, generally address most of the the major needs of enterprises, they have very widespread adoption and all this kind of stuff, then is there a way that we can take the machine learning model into the database so that some of this high level, uh, you know, management, access control, version control, all the sort of stuff that you get for free on your data when you have it in a database in like a professionally managed database management system, that all of that would also potentially apply to the model if the model's inside the database. That is such a strange idea to me. Because intuitively, I think of, like, you've kind of got two things. You've got data, which is not executed, it's used. And then there's code, which is executed. Uh, and I guess, I guess uh, something like a trained ML model is kind of in between, actually, because like you said, it's an artifact of the data. Uh, it would never, I don't think it would have ever occurred to me to solve this problem by just shoving the ML model into the database. Well, and it's not totally trivial to figure out how you would do that, right? Like yeah. you query the database using SQL, structured query language, and there's kind of a certain set of conventions and there's at least for me a certain way that my brain works when I'm thinking about writing a SQL query. And then like you said, when I'm writing a machine learning model, my brain is kind of working in a different way and I'm using a different programming language. There's different conventions that I'm following, there's different libraries that I'm using. So these are two systems that have not been designed to uh, fit together particularly well. And so a lot of times what data scientists are doing right now is they'll have these strings of scripts or they'll have modules in a workflow that are bouncing back and forth between the two systems and trying to take advantage of some functionality in one system and then pipe it over to another system for a different set of functionality and, and back and forth and coming up with these kind of long, complicated pipelines. And so, uh, you know, the idea of trying to put all of this together, like what is that? What does that look like if we wanted to push this all just into a database? So it makes sense that it doesn't make sense because it's not <laughs> something that's, that's particularly been solved before. But this brings us to the second paper. Um, it's called Extending Relational Query Processing with Machine Learning Inference. And so this is, this is a more technical paper, but it's actually going through a system that uh, they are prototyping, it sounds like right now. They have like a working prototype at Microsoft. It's called Raven. And it's a system that allows you to package together SQL and 
machine learning model, like a scikit-learn like regressor or a neural net or whatever, all together in one piece that can be executed hmm. within a database runtime. Oh, interesting. So not just stored in the database, but also executed uh, alongside the database queries. Yeah. So when you're working in uh, the database queries, what you're doing is you're you're mostly manipulating what's called a relational algebra. That's like the term for kind of the rules for uh, writing SQL queries. And when you're working with a machine learning model, a lot of times what you're working with is linear algebra, which is matrices and vectors and multiplying them by each other. And so these are kind of two different systems that think about, you know, one of them is based more around like set theory and you know, one branch of mathematics, if you want to think about it that way, like this, yeah. the, the SQL database stuff, and then you know, machine learning and, and linear algebra, different, different systems. So what they needed to think through was what's a way that you can bring both of these two types of algebra together in a system that can deal with both of them. And what they do is, well, it's actually pretty, it's, it's got some complexity to it, and we probably won't go into all the complexity here, but they've built this system that's rests around this notion of what they call an intermediate representation, or IR. So the intermediate representation is this representation of like a, imagine you have a, a pipeline, so it's got some SQL stuff at the beginning where you're manipulating data. Maybe there's some if let's say you're implementing it using scikit-learn, like you might have to do like a one-hot encoding a feature, or you might have other kinds of feature transformations, those steps in the pipeline then terminate in a, uh, let's say a decision tree or a linear regressor or, you know, linear classifier or something. Mm-hmm. So the intermediate representation is a, a way of representing all of the steps in that pipeline uh, in one coherent place. So you've got relational algebra coming in, you know, SQL stuff, you've got linear algebra coming in. There's, there might be some, like the one hot encoding, you might need some actual special implementation stuff to handle some of that if it can't be handled nicely in either relational or uh, linear algebra. So the, the intermediate representation, long story short, is, is where a lot of the kind of complexity of balancing and optimizing and getting all of these pieces working together, that's where that happens. Um, and then once you get it into that intermediate representation and, and optimized, then it can be packaged up and executed in, it sounds like there's kind of a special version of their of a, a, a SQL Server database that they've adapted so that it can support like a larger set of rules, like a larger set of, of queries or something, if you like. Um, and so then you pass the intermediate representation like into that special SQL server that's got this larger functionality. And then you've got your machine learning pipeline and it's running in your database. That's pretty crazy. So you have increased complexity around that, uh, that intermediate representation and uh, the way that the database actually executes all of this code and it's got things that it's it's trying to optimize for and balancing those things together but the things that you gain are basically getting all of the stuff that you want for your ml model for free from what you've already figured out for your database and if you're an enterprise company you've already figured that stuff out for your database and 
if all your ML stuff plugs into that same system in a fairly intuitive way, then you don't need to train up new people in terms of the way that you operationalize, configure. Uh, you don't have the added complexity of having two systems of permissions, one for your models, one for your data. That coalescing together is, uh, it seems really valuable, especially for uh, enterprise companies. Yeah, I think that's the goal. So these papers that I was reading were not layering in then all of that meta database management stuff. Instead, it's just proving that from a technical perspective, like we can make these two systems play nice inside the same runtime together. I think figuring out how to have a good user experience while you layer on all of that extra stuff is probably something that they're still working on. So this is not like a you can go out and buy it off the shelf right now from what I understand. Uh, you know, this is this is longer term stuff. But yeah, I think that's the long term vision, as we were saying in the in the first part of the show that on say the 10 year time scale, these are things that probably need to happen, like you need to figure out how to bring machine learning into this database system, think about what that might look like. And they've demonstrated by building Raven here and, and proving that it works reasonably well, that that's technically feasible. And so, you know, there's there's non-trivial amounts of work still to be figured out how to like productionalize this, but the big technical proof of concept is is documented in this paper. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm really glad we did this episode. I didn't know any of this going into the episode. Um, these moments where, uh, so I'll just speak for myself. I'll say that when I have these moments where I hear about two things that I think of as fundamentally different or fundamentally separate or, um, you know, oil and water, and I hear about some methodology uh, or strategy for combining them or making them the same in some way or putting one inside the other it's kind of a cool feeling to fe to 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 feel that like ew yuck that's that's gross but then to actually explore it and to see the ways in which it actually makes more sense than it intuitively feels like it would and from my own experience as a front end web developer I had that moment with CSS and JavaScript. So CSS is the language that tells the website how to display things, like your sidebar is on the left or the right, your sidebar is this big, your background color is this or whatever. JavaScript is the what do you do on the page? What do you do when you submit this form? What do you do, like, if a user clicks the button, do you move this thing in from the left or, or whatever? And there's just f always... I always thought of them as completely independent from each other, pretty much. And then this strategy came out that put CSS basically inside of JavaScript. And it was completely unintuitive. And actually, there are a lot of people who still maintain that it's a terrible idea and are very upset about it. Uh, but I, I kind of love those moments, those paradigm shifts, because it challenges all of our ideas of what is the quote-unquote right way to do something and maybe uh, opens our minds up a little bit and exercises our imagination.
Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.